From Buffalo, Toronto Public Media and WBFO, this is Buffalo What's Next, Producers Picks. Highlights of conversations heard on previous shows. On this week's episode, we'll hear from Matt Tice, the director of Vive, a shelter helping refugee immigrants and asylum seekers in Western New York. We are designed to be a trauma-informed space. We want to be a a respite, a a safe opportunity for people who are on a journey towards their next step to have a moment of rest, to work out their next steps in uh, wherever they're headed next. Later on, Cambria Daniels, a mental health specialist with Best Self Behavioral Health, joined us to discuss the mental trauma that our school-aged children are facing amid the rise of shootings and primarily falsified active shooter reports. Right now, it's a collective trauma. They they were not well before coming out. You know, we're not we're still in the pandemic. Right. And then on top of that, you have the compound trauma of everything going on in the community. So that shared universal value of wanting safety, and I'm not talking just physical safety, I'm talking psychological safety, our kiddos are sensitive to that right now. Finally, we revisit our Freedom Seder discussion with Rabbi Brent Gutman, Senior Rabbi at Temple Beth Zion, and Reverend Jonathan Staples, the Senior Pastor of First Shiloh Baptist Church. We've got to do some work as a society to really figure out how we bridge that divide, how we better understand that divide. First off, we continue to hear the stories about waves of immigrants and asylum seekers making their way to large border or safe haven cities such as Buffalo. We spoke to Matt Tice, who runs the Vive Shelter, about the influx of migrants arriving in the city and the challenges of helping these individuals to secure resident status here in the United States or in Canada. Today I'm joined by Mr. Matt Tice. He's the director of the Vive Refugee Shelter uh, in the east side of Buffalo. It's a division of Jericho Road Community Health Center. Matt, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. And uh, Matt, uh, you've been with Vive now for about three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've been working as a social worker in, in different capacities before that, but you, what Vive is doing currently, and now you mentioned Vive has been around for 40 years, mm-hmm. but as of the last about eight years or eight so. Eight years, yeah. it's now uh, part of Jericho Road. Mm-hmm. We've had Dr. Glick on before, who's the CEO of, mm-hmm. of Jericho Road, but we wanted to speak with you because you're you're there with, with these asylum seekers, these, mm-hmm. these individuals immigrating to the United States, or in, in a lot of cases, what you're seeing is up en route to Canada. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one thing that, that kind of has intensified the immigration into the United States or into Canada, it has been the, the Safe Third Country Agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, for those uninformed, and I wouldn't blame you because it happened on a Friday afternoon last month, March 24th. Uh, President Biden and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau met, and uh, they basically, this agreement had been on the books for a while now, I think since 2004, but as of that date last month, both uh, heads of state basically said that they were going to implement or enforce this to a larger degree, and not to get too in the in the weeds of, of 
immigration law, but it is an important factor here in this conversation. It it was set forth to deter migrant crossings each state and basically stated that if an immigrant was coming into one of the one or two of the countries, they had to be returned back to the last quote unquote safe uh, country that that they they came from mm-hmm. to make their their claim for asylum. Correct me if I'm wrong. That I think that's in a, in a nutshell. That's that's what we're talking about. Yeah, more or less. So um, you've been seeing in your time with Vive a lot of asylum seekers here and already in the United States trying to head into Canada mm-hmm. by means of uh, the, the main pathway in northern New York State is Roxham Road, correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's since uh, shortly after this. This happened on Friday, March 24th, and then that night, Saturday at midnight, it, it really, the uh, Border Patrol, uh, the Mounted Police, they, they kind of cracked down on, 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 they basically shut down Roxham Road. Yeah, so with with some of the new enforcement or the the hardening Mm -hmm. of the safe third country agreement it meant that uh, one avenue that many people had access to go to canada and file a, a refugee claim there was eliminated prior there were many people that if they did not have a a qualifying anchor relative, for instance, or they did not fit with some of the other exceptions for the safe third country. And I do actually want to talk a little bit more sure. of the distinctions of that in a moment. But <clears throat> they um, they now are not able to do that. And that, that made it impossible that anyone could go to what would be called a, an informal crossing. One of the biggest informal crossings across really the the entire northern border in the uh, along Canada and the United States was Roxham Road, and that just to clarify is up uh, by um, Plattsburgh, mm-hmm. uh, and that that borders like the Quebec area of, of mm-hmm. Canada. Yeah, and and last year, almost forty thousand people crossed through that wow. that uh, particular port of entry and it's a you know it's a, a a country road that dead ends essentially in Canada it's about 40 minutes outside of Plattsburgh and uh, because of the nature of how many people were crossing there the the Canadian government essentially established a, a processing center where if you did cross you would actually be arrested but then you could initiate a refugee claim. Now that has been uh, closed down entirely. People, unfortunately, are still actually trying to go up there, and they uh, are immediately arrested, and they're potentially facing even stronger consequences as as a result. They're also turned back to the United States, and given what's oftentimes what's called an exclusion order so that they can't uh, even attempt to go into Canada. I think you can't, re- you can't uh, seek asylum uh, for about a year after that. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as a result, that has now meant that we in our shelter have seen many more people come. Uh, last year alone, 
we served about 2,500 people. And about 2,000 of those were on their way to Canada. 1,200 went through the formal process. Mm -hmm. They qualified to pass through at the Peace Bridge. 800 of them were on their way to to Roxham Road. Now, we gave information. We Mm -hmm. were not, uh, we weren't, counseling them to go to this informal crossing, but 800 people, if if we were in this situation and now, have nowhere else to go. These mm-hmm. were people that were here in in the city of Buffalo, and uh, and now where, where, where else are they gonna turn? Um, we have this unique position as our, as our shelter to support individuals where where we're at but you know there there's really nowhere else where they can turn and except maybe considering a, a claim here in the United States now and we're going to continue just trying to understand uh, the severity of the, of the situation but um, explain to me what the, the team at Vive does what, what is what are you tasked with yeah so uh, we are we're a shelter first, you know, you've mentioned I'm a social worker, like we are uh, designed to be a trauma-informed space. We want to uh, be a, a respite, a, a safe opportunity for people who are on their journey towards their next step to, to be, to have a moment of rest, to work out their next steps in uh, wherever they're headed next. And so they have a bed, but they also can get free access to medical care through Jericho Road. Um, they get access to case management. Anyone who stays with us has to be working on a their legal claim, their mm-hmm. asylum claim. And so we have a legal department that, as a part of Vive, we have a small legal staff. And then we also partner with Journeys and Refugee Services and their legal department where they have a couple of attorneys there that will consult or, or take on cases. And uh, additionally, we have, you know, we've got English classes every day. We've got, um, you know, we've got a really active kitchen. Any, any, anybody who stays with us, we don't charge them anything. The only thing that we expect them to do is that everybody has a chore. So it's almost kind of mm-hmm. like a family. You, you help prepare meals. You're taking out the trash. You're watching kids in our playroom, and uh, that you so they a, all a contribute. Hairdresser that has kind of almost like set up shop. Yeah. in the, in the, the uh-huh. shelter. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, it's it's busy all the mm-hmm. time. It's really really full, but uh, we we do have this really unique position, and there is only a very small handful of other organizations that are like us across mm. the country. I could probably count on one hand how many uh, that do this kind of shelter work serving asylum seekers at the level in which we do. And uh, it's almost like a, a, a breather, a pit stop on the way to potentially Canada. I had a my question regarding it's something like 70 countries in the last year that you've mm-hmm. seen uh, 2,281 migrants, I, I, I think mm-hmm. is the number I, I yeah. read. Where are the bulk of, of, of these immigrants coming from mm-hmm. uh, that you're seeing in, uh, 
currently? Yeah, I think most recently, probably the biggest groups would have been from Congo, Angola, Venezuela, Colombia, Peru. Um, we've seen more people showing up from Sudan. You know, mm. kind of look around the world and see where conflict or where violence is happening. And then we can project forward in the next few months. These are likely going to be the places where people are showing up. This last summer, we had more individuals coming from Russia and Ukraine. Mm. Before that, we had a lot of people coming from Haiti. So uh, we we kind of can anticipate that th that people will come based on what's ever going on. And to, is it mainly are they entering the, the country southern border? Or are they just how 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 do they arrive to Buffalo? Yeah, for the most part. You know, for the most part, they're coming through the southern border, and uh, they, you know, they already had contact with uh, immigration authorities, and uh, you know, they then maintain that contact, and so they they are working through the legal process, mm -hmm. and they are continuing to to maintain that contact with the legal authorities. So it, it is an important distinction of like- It's a lengthy process. It is. It, well, not only is it a lengthy process, but these are, these are people who are going through a, a very intentional process that is built up that you can go through to eventually claim asylum. And a distinction I think we should make moving forward uh, asylum seekers and refugees. Mm -hmm. There's there's a distinct difference there. It's not they're not interchangeable. What what's the difference there? Yeah, you know, it it in some ways it could be interchangeable in the sense of where they're coming from um, initially, but um, you know you you could see people refugees coming from Congo or Angola, um, but they a person who gets a refugee status, they are granted that by the UN High Commission for Refugees, UNCHCR, or UNHCR. And they get that status even prior to arriving here in the United States. And then they have access to additional benefits and other supports. And then they get a, uh, they get connected to a resettlement agency who will ensure that they uh, know what they're doing and they can connect and, and, and settle into the community. An asylum seeker, on the other hand, they oftentimes will come into the United States and they are um, they're still working through that process. Mm. It, it almost feels defensive. You know, they've, they've crossed the border, they've had contact with immigration authorities, and then they are initiating a claim they're seeing what next steps they can take. And they're not always successful either. Um, you know, the rates depend. I think it's like a third, at least on the Canadian side, mm -hmm. a third of, of, of the, I think it was between, actually from March 25th to April 16th, 264 asylum claims in an, in an official port of entry, and only a third of them were, were deemed eligible. So, mm -hmm. they, I mean... I feel like the Canadian uh, government and the U.S. government are kind of just also uh, overburdened, but but mm -hmm. it's just it, it, it's a it's a it's a rigmarole almost. Mm -hmm. that, they, that a lot of hoops that, that need to uh, be jumped through to to get uh, 
asylum to get somewhat a temporary mm-hmm. stay here, and and then then comes the the life after that. Yeah, there there is, and I mean that's part of where we we take on this responsibility of being able to support people through that process. You know, if you are on your own and you're doing this, it can be incredibly onerous. It can be really hard. Uh, But when we can stand with them or, you know, we even have opportunities to connect volunteers to go with a person Mm. that they can maybe go to appointments or that they can um, help talk with the, the process of what it looks like here in the United States or in Canada. I mean, we're, we're not on the side of Canada, but we can maybe prepare them for mm-hmm. that. And, uh, but it's, it's really hard and it's really lengthy. And uh, it is not, you know, people may have this perception of you can just come here and then you're just here. No, mm-hmm. you, you're really working very uh like with a huge amount of effort over a long amount of time. Next up, if the rise in mass shootings wasn't enough of a stressor, in the months of March and April, several New York State school districts saw a string of falsified active shooter or bomb threat reports. It's a problematic fad known as swatting, Jay Moran had a conversation with Cambria Daniels, a mental health specialist and program director at Best Self Behavioral Health, to try and understand the mental trauma surrounding this issue. After an incident like this happens, how do you come into play? Sure. So um, I am fortunate enough to go all throughout Erie and Niagara County with mental health awareness trainings. Um, think trauma-informed care, safe spaces, discipline with dignity. Um, I'm also triple certified in the mental health um, first aid, uh, which is different than psychological first aid because that's we're talking disaster, right? Okay. Um, mental health first aid is a certification for the adult that maybe works with adults to recognize the early signs and symptoms of developing mental health challenges in other adults. Youth mental health first aid is for the adult that works with adolescents specifically. That's kind of where we're coming into play here. Um, So any teacher, you know, any layperson, really, if you're working with young adults, um, our adolescents, you really want to take a look at that. That's a certification for the adult. And there's also a teen, teen mental health first aid, and that's for youth. So um, we know statistically our teenagers would rather speak with each other when they're dealing with mental health challenges. So that's a certification for the teen. Um, That type of professional development really helps teachers wrap their minds around, hey, maybe I'm noticing some behaviors with uh, the teenagers after the fact. Um, But we have to be allowed the time to go in and provide those trainings because they are a three-year certification for the adult learner. Um, In the instance of South Park, that's one of our sites. So I am in a school-based department of Best Self Behavioral Health. South Park happens to be one of our sites. We have an extended learning program there. We are also the CBO partner with the Saturday Academy Initiative. So think a select Saturdays open to the entire public, not just the youth of that school. Um, and for a small amount of time, say 10 to 1, 
where we have something for everyone. We have free breakfast and free lunch. Um, we provide workshops from littles, middles to bigs, etc. Um, but we're a thread in that school. So when stuff like this happens, we want to debrief. We want to maybe push into a classroom and say, hey, let's have a conversation about this. How are you feeling? Um, restorative practices is a term. And our staff are trained in restorative practices. So we turn that entire classroom into a community circle where everyone, the teacher, maybe there's a teacher's aide, we can all have these open and honest conversations about what really happened here? How are we feeling and what additional supports are needed? We want to, like you said, there's early intervention with the kids and then there's what happens in the aftermath. Mm -hmm. The aftermath, what might be going on with a child who lived through what happened at South Park or Lockport? Again, mm -hmm. nothing finally happened, thank goodness, mm -hmm. but yet scary situations, very scary. Absolutely, and again, uh, thank you for bringing that up. It's not just the kids. Um, we're seeing it in adults too, right? We're expecting our teachers to just put on uh, called armoring up and just go in and teach, despite the fact that they might have concerns about their own kiddos. Um, but with the kids, they'll show you before they tell you. And what I mean is observing that behavior. You will see a kid that's normally, say, sitting with a group during lunch, they're withdrawing. Mm. You'll start to see them have like a, um, a response. It's basically a trauma response, right, where they're kind of jumpy all the time. Um, Dr. Nadine Burke really talks well about this with um, the ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. Um, if your mind is constantly on, hey, a bear walked in this room. That's normal to have a response where you might run, <laughs> you know, you're, right, pre you're right. preparing your body for that. But right. what if you're always in that state of mind, right? Because right now it's a collective trauma. They, they were not well before coming out, you know, we're not, we're still in the pandemic. Right. And then on top of that, you have the compound trauma of everything going on in the community. So that shared universal value of wanting safety, and I'm not talking just physical safety, I'm talking psychological safety, our kiddos are um, sensitive to that right now. So it's about being able to pay attention to their behaviors, those nonverbal behaviors that are truly communicating, hey, I don't feel safe in this space. School is supposed to be safe, and I'm not sure. And the, you'll see that in the kid's behavior. How can that even be changed, it mm -hmm. seems? How, I mean, obviously, again, you, you're briefed and, and you're an you're expert in, in counseling, but how can you take, a, whether it's a child or an adult, mm -hmm. that is dealing and focused and, you know, obsessing perhaps to a certain extent on that type of situation, a dangerous situation, a traumatic situation, how can we get somebody out of that? Right. So we first need to validate how they're feeling, right? We need to create a space where they can come and talk to said counselor. Um, maybe, you know, you notice a pattern in behavior change and that kiddo gets special permission to go see the counselor, the school counselor or school psychologist if they have time. Um, we're thankful, again, for our partnerships in certain schools where they already know that we're there. And then we have that extended learning program because the kids going throughout the day and then they have this open space, you know, so to speak. Right. And after school, you get that academic support and 
the mental health support at the same time. Um, during the day, we are relying on the teachers to tell us, to say, hey, did you notice this? Is it a pattern? Um, is the kid always just going AWOL, maybe walking right out of your classroom? More than one person's going to notice that. Sure. So that is your in to say, hey, Come, come, let's have lunch together. Uh, what's going on? Tell me about how you're feeling. Is it the slamming of the doors that's triggering you? Does that remind you of something that, you know, uh, trauma response, or I'm sorry, trauma history that happened before? Let's talk about that. Let's work through that together. Same thing with the faculty. Maybe um, a teacher has gone to an administrator and the administrator can have that conversation with us to say, what additional supports can we provide so that they have the professional development, but it's in a way that helps them teach and process their feelings? The, like you said, the, the pandemic is its own pile of issues, and kids are still dealing with that in a lot of ways. It almost sounds like in a place like South Park or any place that had to deal with this kind of incident – is there enough help? Is there enough people that can can get on board and and, and sure. help these kids out? I mean, um, the more the better, sure. <laughs> right? Um, we we are even expanding. You, you see that the need is there. They want to intervene early. They want to catch it before again it's clinical. Um, but there's like a third of adults that are already avoiding spaces, events. A third of a adults. A third of adults are already saying, I no longer want to go here or I no longer want to be involved with this event. So if that's happening with adults, you can imagine what's happening with our young people. They are constantly planning their escape route, going into school, going into, you know, an event that once brought them joy. That is the mental state of our kids right now. We are talking with uh, Cambria Daniels of uh, Best Self, and uh, she is the uh, project director for mental health awareness training. Talk to us about the training that you provide. Sure. Uh, I mean, there's obviously, again, a lot there. That all being stated, though, give us an idea of what I might see if I was, say, a, a teacher or maybe even a substitute teacher at a school, mm -hmm. what I might uh, learn. Absolutely. So I, again, am so thankful for the opportunity to come into schools, to work with faculty. Um, some agencies reach out to me. We're talking, I just train like People Inc., you know, um, faith-based organizations, because that is a protective factor, especially if you are spiritual in any way. You might want to go to your um, faith-based organization, but are they equipped with the language, with the um, knowledge to notice those behavior changes. So I am a triple certified as an instructor in the mental health first aids. That's one of the... Um, the higher requests that yeah. I get <laughs> because again, you know, uh, it's a three year certification for the adult learner. Same thing for the teenage version, but that is helping you recognize those early signs and symptoms. Maybe this is turning into a mental health challenge, therefore crisis. So um, am I aware of the behavior standard behaviors of, you know, someone that's not quite coping well. Um, that is a full-on day of training. So some agencies decide to split it. For example, the adult mental health first aid is an eight-hour training. I can come to the location or I can invite you into our training facility of Best Self Behavioral Health. 
I've also worked with the schools. They have parent center hours, which are usually later in the day. We're talking starting at four, going until upwards of 730 on two nights a week Mm. because they want to give parents as much support as possible. That training can be split into two days. Ideally, you know, if the parent center is open Monday and Wednesday, I can come in Monday and Wednesday. But they sit with me. It's highly interactive. Um, It's based off of data from the National Council on Mental Well-Being. So it's a legit certification, Hmm. all evidence-based, wonderful curricula that actually updates. So even me as an instructor, I have to stay um, up to date whenever any language changes, any stats change. Um, and that requires an additional like module that I would have to you know, refresh on. Youth Mental Health First Aid actually has adapted for indigenous populations and rural communities. Yes, so anyone, any adult working with adolescents, we're thinking like say 15 to 19, um, that's a wonderful certification for the adult because hey, what our kiddos are dealing with is different than working with an adult. The adult's behavior or cognition might be is going to be drastically different than a teenager. Um, so those trainings are, you know, again, highly requested. In a perfect world, I could come in and train teenagers only in the teen mental health first aid. That is a three-year certification for the teenager. Are teens taking advantage of that? Teens are absolutely taking That's advantage. Um, I just got a, a huge cohort at Bennett High School, for example. But again, the admin believe in it. They see the difference. They said they told me they saw the difference within a school year, that the kids are behaving and responding and using the language with each other. They are an internal support system. So what if I did all of sophomores? And then those sophomores have that certification year after year. And they know they know how to connect their peers with a responsible adult. They know who their student support team is. They know where their office is. They know that they can go see said individual if they're dealing with mental health challenges. In addition to those certifications, I also have um, trauma-informed care and safe spaces. Again, we all bring a little something to the table, right? And what if you have a trauma history? That's going to affect how you interact with your colleague, with a student, um, anywhere in the community, right? So that's a, it's not a certification, but you do get a cert, like think um, professional development credits for that. Um, I wrap around and put in the safe spaces because how do we actually execute the care? Now that you're trauma-informed, how are you applying it? So I give them a little tidbit of that to say, hey, are you accounting for the psychological safety? Did you know that, you know, a kiddo was triggered by the door slamming? Because in their environment, maybe they're around gunshots, and the gunshots remind them of the door slam, Mm. right? Did you ever consider that perspective? Um, Discipline with dignity is heavy in the schools because we always think punitive um, with behavior, but sometimes there's something else going on, the classic bottom of the glacier, right? right? The kiddo's showing you anger, but maybe they are embarrassed. They're showing you aggression, but maybe they are feeling um, learned helplessness. That's a thing, right? So we have to- Learned helplessness. Learned helplessness, yes. So maybe that's how they feel because they feel like there's nothing else that they could do um, in their environment, home, community, and school. So discipline with dignity is more about structure and consistency. That's what our kiddos need. Because if you can develop that, then they can independently have those um, coping skills and self-regulation skills personally without you in the room success stories. I was really, uh, 
when you mentioned what's going on at Bennett, that how the administrators say they've seen this remarkable improvement, it might be like the best piece of news I think I've heard in a long time up from anything, especially when we deal with such difficult issues. But what about that? What maybe t- take me through some people, whether they're kids or administrators or parents, where you saw you have seen that kind of progress, or perhaps people you've trained have seen that type of progress. What can you tell us? Can you give us some examples? And you know, that is the the best. That, I call it planting the seed, right? You might not see it immediately. You might, um, I might come in and provide the training and not come back, you know, after the series is complete. Um, but it's hearing that feedback from the people that work with these kids on a daily basis. I've had teachers say that, saying, hey, you know, usually a kiddo would, you know, know, agitate another kiddo. And after your training, I noticed they really backed off or they changed their language. Um, Seeing them interact in the hallway is completely different. Um, That is truly the best piece of this, right? And the fact I'll, I'll pick on Bennett because they come back year after year. Okay. <laughs> so um, even before this school year, the year before that, I came in and did the series with um, a batch of kiddos and they immediately contacted me in the summer to say, so we want you to come back and do, you know, however many classes, right? Um, So they see it too. That means that that's affecting their suspensions. That means the suspensions are probably decreasing. The office discipline referrals, the ODRs, which it goes right into the system. So even if a kiddo was to transfer schools, that record goes with them. Mm -hmm. So they must be seeing a decrease there. That's where the data is driving the decision. Obviously, um, maybe even the calls, the crisis calls from SST, because, see, I'm not there. I'm not housed at the school. So maybe SST, student support, are no longer getting those calls over the walkie-talkie. Maybe we're getting a decrease in fighting, right? The proof is in the behavior. (laughs) So something is working and it's resonating with those kiddos that's lasting the whole school year. Something we wish we didn't have to predict this, but we're going to take the prediction that swatting incidents aren't going to go away anytime soon. Unfortunately, um, people like to elicit the fear. Um, and it is an unfortunate circumstance that some people enjoy doing that to other people because we're already in a state of high anxiety and depression, right? right? Whether people acknowledge it or not, we're all dealing with that collective trauma and people are preying on that. Unfortunately, they realize that, say, schools, for example, have a certain uh, procedure. You already have your fire drills. You have your lockdown, your shelter in place, your lock in. um, And it's fun for people, unfortunately, to make those bogus calls. And there's probably really no way to alter the way we go about lockdown drills and things like that. They have to be. They have to have serious. Mm -hmm. They've got to be definite there's no other way to do it but yet it, it's got to leave a a, a taste of trauma I would say. absolutely and that's where I say how about we have these conversations before after consistently right it's the community so it's not just in school we need to have these conversations at home um, and be careful with the timing of said uh, you Mm. know conversation so it doesn't have to be after it happened it's like hey run that down for me what is a lockdown drill 
You know, um, think of a school year, right? A traditional school year, we're talking September to June, nine months. I'm talking space it out like three times within a school year, not every week, not every month. Just having a conversation with your young person to say, talk to me about, you know, what does that drill look like? What happens? What are the rendezvous points, you know, when you're outside and stuff like that? Also being proactive on their technology. If you have kids that ha and you're giving them cell phones, make sure the cell phone is fully charged. Maybe send them with a charger and a backup, uh, the battery pack. And you mentioned cell phones. I did think of this earlier. The amount of information that comes into kids all the time, it's got to multiply the impact flooding. of such an mm -hmm. incident. Information flooding, right? Um, and this is something, a conversation that, because I provided direct service and I would candidly have this conversation. Your diet is not just what you consume. It is who you interact with, what you read, um, and what you expose yourself to, whether it's social media or the news. You can turn it off, <laughs> okay? <laughs> and that is a self-discipline that, you know, it has to be taught. We have to model it as adults, right? It's natural for us to want that instant gratification. We want to know. We want to know right now, right? But how about you set yourself up for, say, your slumber and shut it off at 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock? Whatever it is, be consistent, right? Um, Think 9-11, the Boston Marathon, you can, you, I bet you money that you know exactly where you were, what you were doing when you got that news. Right. Think of the way it was delivered to you. I candidly remember the footage. Uh, it looked like as if multiple planes were hitting. Right. And I'm like, I thought there were only two towers. So, you right, know, if right, that's right. happening over and over again and you already have a trauma history, that has you on level 10. You are scared. You don't know if it's happening in live time, et cetera. Right now, a lot of our kids, you know, maybe and I'm talking younger, they're in an environment where the parent just wants to know right here, right now. And the news is just on all day. What if it's just mm. on all day? Again, we have to model the behavior that we want. So maybe we turn it off or slow it down or regulate that information the best way that we can, you know, and therefore you're teaching your kiddos like, hey, you can do this too independently. You do not have to be on social media all day and all night. And for our last highlight, we revisit our sit down with the senior rabbi at Temple Beth Zion, Rabbi Brent Gutman, and Senior Pastor of First Shiloh Baptist Church, Reverend Jonathan Staples. The two arranged for their mutual congregations to come together to host a Freedom Seder. At the interfaith dinner, the two religious leaders discussed social justice and ways to improve Buffalo while breaking bread with one another. what happened on Jefferson Avenue at the tops. Uh, how about for you, Rabbi? Um, you arrived a little bit after that, so the feeling was still very raw. It's still raw, of course, right now. But um, how about what you saw and experienced among your congregation and just what you saw in the community uh, uh, as well? 
I think that the pain that was inflicted on our predominantly African-American Buffalonians that day uh, was felt acutely among the Jewish community. Uh, the issues of xenophobia uh, that we are confronting, of, of fear of the other, of intolerance, of a feeling of resentment as though something's been taken away from a certain group of Americans uh, are all too real in, in our community as well. Uh, I believe that the rise in anti-Semitism is inextricably linked uh, with the permission that's been tacitly granted by uh, leaders, politicians, uh, people within our country. Uh, there, there's a correlation, and they, they have the same cause. We need our leaders to advocate to end this hatred. We need our leaders to advocate to make actions such as picking up a firearm and aiming it at someone who you disagree or something you find about them objectionable is not as easy as it currently is. That is a huge issue. And we need to also lead through our example, through our dugma, as we call it in Hebrew, uh, to stand up for for those who are also feeling threatened, uh, to advocate for their safety, to to not only speak about them as our brothers, but to behave as though they are our brothers, and that I am my brother's keeper, and that the way that I respond when a heinous, violent attack is perpetrated in my community uh, is really important. We can't allow it to continue. And since you said that, uh, Rabbi Gutman, and I'll uh, start the give you, uh, Reverend Staples, an opportunity to, to kind of build up on that conversation, but just on a specific level, because when Rabbi mentioned it, I mean, your congregation's on Pine Street. It's probably less than two miles from the Jefferson Avenue Tops. Right around three. Does your congregation feel safe right now? No. Um... This affected and affects us deeply and personally. This tops, it's just a little over three miles away from our congregation. And um, there are countless um, people in the congregation that knew people that lost their lives. Um, this was not something that happened um, someplace else. Uh, this was not something that people were not connected to, um, but this was something very tangible and very real um, and something that that really touched um, the life of our congregation in in a deep way. Um, and I would suggest change the way, uh, almost like the pandemic, um, change the way that we gather, that we worship. Um, and uh, change the way that we even look at um, our surroundings as we move about. It also um, unearthed in my mind the poor and low housing stock 
in that area because I think it's all interrelated. Um, it unearthed transportation issues. Um, that store for so many people because it was the only full service store on the east side was the only option. And um, so how do we address the transportation issues, the housing stock issues? As I have spoken with um, leaders in Erie County, they are afraid because we are seeing an influx in our country of refugees and immigrants coming by by great numbers. And it's only a matter of time before they get from New York City to Buffalo. And we don't have the infrastructure and the housing stock to house them. And they are greatly worried. So, so how do we help uh, address these problems? Lastly, I think the other thing that was, that was so visibly shown is the great divide in, in, our, in our city and region. Um, and Main Street is kind of <laughs> that divide mm. between East and West. Um, I was leading a workshop this past Saturday when um, in Clarence and a wonderful talk around trauma and what trauma has done. And one of the conversations um, from the people there was that, you know, we only come into the city to go to Klein Hands or to go to Shays. Hmm. That there is this notion that people are really divorced <laughs> from what's going on in the, in the city. And there's this incredible divide between the haves and the have-nots. And we would never hear people um, in Westchester say, I only go to the city to go to Lincoln City or to, Center or to Broadway. Right. Or we would never <laughs> hear people in, in the suburbs of Los Angeles that say, I only go to the city to go see the Lakers or the Clippers play uh, or the Dodgers play. Um, and so we've got we've to do some work as a society to really figure out how we, how we um, bridge that divide, how we better understand that divide. Eventually, the rabbi and reverend would discuss the commonalities they encountered with the food served at the Seder. Before we move on from the Freedom Seder, the food. We have to talk about the food. I mean, I, I mean, this is a great part of the whole, the whole thing. So, I mean, please, please tell, tell us what was what was on the menu for uh, for the Freedom Seder. Oh my Seder. gosh! Well, I mean, this is this is part of the beautiful cross pollination. You know, in unexpected ways, uh, we we wanted to do this program as an opportunity to engage our members and get them to think differently. Uh, but the cross pollination, just in terms of how a community functions and operates, was so rich. Um, Temple Beth Zion is a, an old institution and uh, historically has been professionalized. And, and part of the charge that I carry here in the community is uh, being able to right-size uh, and create more of a, a volunteer-driven culture because, you know, frankly, fiscally, we can't afford the staff we once did when we were uh, 2,000 members and not 620 members as we are, are right now households. Um, 
And and so what I learned from from Pastor Staples is is he suggested well you know we got to prepare the mo- the food we've got to we've got to cook it is that uh, for Shiloh has a very adept culinary team a culinary committee uh, and so this became the impetus for us to form our own culinary committee uh, they use their space regularly to prepare and serve food and so we had to ready our space including you know, we purchased just in the couple of weeks before a new 10 burner stove uh, to have in the kitchen that took care of a gas leak. You know, some of our institutional problems are edifice and that's a a reality as well. Uh, But what what happened beyond that, and this really uh, is, I think, the credit of the the chairs of for Shiloh's uh, culinary committee and uh, uh, my my wife and a member of the congregation who've stepped up to be co-chairs of our culinary committee because they got together and discussed really from from soup to nuts um, no pun intended <laughs> what what goes into uh, this meal and as we were looking to share those stories of liberation and freedom and as symbolic food is so central to what Passover means for a freedom seder with our black brothers and sisters, we wanted to be able to uh, balance the symbolic foods that were there. So uh, it's it's not unusual to add contemporary symbolic foods to a seder plate, uh, but this meant that uh, we were adding collard greens and black-eyed peas and sweet potato, uh, these foods that, that have deep significance for, for Pastor Staples' community. Uh, and, uh, you know, collard greens and matzo ball soup really just adds to the refinement of the experience. And oh my gosh, that chicken that you guys prepare, uh, no wonder you don't have anyone who's not eager to come in and bring their uh, forks and knives and plates to enjoy a meal with First Shiloh because they really know how to cook and, and we're learning from them. Well, what about the, how, uh, the food? First, how was the sweet potato pie? Oh, phenomenal. Yeah. Absolutely phenomenal. Where does it rank in uh, the city legacy? Top. Right at the top? At the very top. I'd like to see um, that for myself. Anyway. Jay, one of the things that was just absolutely um, phenomenal, as Rabbi Brent has, has shared, was the coming together of the two volunteer culinary ministries um, to, do, to do this. When I did this in California... Um, again, we had the volunteers of the of the synagogue and the volunteers of our church. They came together for a week and prepared everything uh, and did everything. And it was much tougher uh, in California because it was a kosher congregation, and so um, there was other specific things that we had we had to do. Um, because Temple Beth Zion is not a kosher congregation, it even made the work I think easier uh, on our side and. For the most part, uh, Rabbi Brent and I were just simply voluntold uh, <laughs> to, to get out of the way and, and let us do this. And, and, and the culinary committees did a phenomenal job. I had no idea uh, 
that you could add those elements that are essential to the African-American community to a Seder plate because every Seder meal I had been to, whether it was a regular Seder or Freedom Seder, always had the traditional Seder foods. Uh, and so when Rabbi Brent came up with the idea, well, why don't we add these other foods? I said, well, can we? <laughs> uh, and, it, and it was phenomenal because it, 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 it led more. It wasn't just, it wasn't just the liturgy that was um, fused together with parts of the um, Exodus story and parts of um, the African-American chattel slavery a story, but it was also the foods, the actual foods that, that, that we ate. Oh, and what about then uh, beyond the food? And uh, what about in terms of was there a formal type of uh, speeches given, uh, sermons, things along those lines to talk about it, or was it kept on, on more on a, a, a lighter side, for lack of a better term? So we we prepare a haggadah each year. Uh, Haggadah comes from the Hebrew word lehagid to tell. It is to tell our children the story of our redemption. This this Haggadah, Pastor Staples uh, had his, his previous text that he had used, and that was a great starting point, not to reinvent the wheel, but to adjust and to adapt it so that uh, the the stories as well as the the poetry, I mean the 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 butter, the cream of the culture was there inside of the service that we were following and speaking about. And beyond that, the the extemporaneous, glosses and to see Pastor Staples and I sitting at the head at a table together and for for him to reach out and, and call me his brother and for me to be able to reciprocate and call him my brother demonstrates something powerful before our communities that does tell a story. One of the things I um, want to highlight is that unfortunately, I think there was an era where we spent too much time concerned about the maintenance of institutions rather than um, a more social justice uh, prophetic ministry. Um, and one of the tough things that, that faith leaders have to do is we've got to balance, you know, how do we maintain institutions, how do we disciple and grow individuals, and how do we better the world? <laughs> uh, how, how, how do we say truth to power, and how do we do that all at the same time? Um, and how do we model um, the love that um, our faith stories tell us about and that um, our faith traditions um, have as central and core. How do we model that uh, in a world where um, there's so much uh, going on? Um, so we, we, we're juggling those balls all at the same time. And whenever that balance is out of whack um, between 
the maintenance of the institution, the social justice, the uh, growing people, um, the showing the love, living living out our faith. Whenever that balance is not is out of whack, then we are out of whack. And so I think for far too long, we have spent way too much time not um, engaging in our, our commonality and, and what we hold in common and, and how we can move forward to both better the world and at the same time show the world that we really are connected, that we really are brothers and sisters. We thank you for joining us. This has been Buffalo What's Next, Producers Picks. We also would like to thank all of our guests, Matt Tice from the Vive Shelter, Cambria Daniels from Best Self Behavioral Health, Rabbi Brent Gutman of Temple Beth Zion, and Reverend Jonathan Staples of First Shiloh Baptist Church. As a reminder, Buffalo What's Next airs on WBFO every weekday, 10 to 11, and gets re-aired each night at 9 p.m. It's also available wherever you get your podcasts or the Amplify BTPM app. It's also on demand at WBFO.org. I'm producer Lorenzo Rodriguez. Thank you very much for listening.